Well, good morning. I'm going to start one minute early because I want to make a one-minute announcement uh, before Rob uh, increases our store of knowledge. And that is, if you're interested in tomorrow's tour of Independence Hall uh, with Professor Rob McDonald, one of the world's great experts on the period, please stay behind after this talk uh, in this room. Before going to lunch, we're just going to have a brief session uh, to go through it. So things like leave most of your weapons in the hotel, do not take them to Independence Hall, and so on. So if you want to go tomorrow morning to Independence Hall uh, with Rob, please, after his talk, stay here in the back where Katie is uh, for just a few minutes, and there'll be a brief orientation. Rob. Well, thanks, everybody. It's really nice of you. you don't, I, I haven't done anything yet, but uh, anyway. Yeah, thanks so much for the warm welcome. Um, so today I have the pleasure to, to give two talks, and um, the one this morning is called The First American Republic. Can anyone guess what the one this afternoon will be called? The Second American Republic. And uh, it's a slight change from what's printed on the, the program, um, inspired in part by my undergraduate uh, advisor at the University of Virginia, a professor named Peter Onuf. And uh, he always made the point that you could divide American history into two halves, and they're very distinct halves. Um, the first American Republic is before the Civil War. The second American Republic is after the Civil War. Um, and his contention is that the Civil War, um, in, in a number of different ways, ways that you might consider to be um, bad as well as ways that you might consider to be good, transformed the United States. Um, and, and, and so today we're looking at the first American Republic, which of course um, begins with our own movement for independence. And I want to essentially pick up where we left off yesterday. Um, when you think about uh, what happened uh, a, a few blocks away at Independence Hall um, when the Continental Congress convened in July of 1776, I mean, this is an incredible moment. Um, the whole year of 1775 and 1776 was, in many respects, an incredible extended moment. Um, incredible for, for ways that we might immediately appreciate. The idea that this nation um, is declaring its birth um, on the terms that it does, that, that the purpose of the United States is to promote individual freedom. I mean, when you, and this is an amazing thing. I mean, when you think about it, um, and I say this with, with all due uh, deference to our, our, our friends in the audience who are from um, other nations, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten a, a chance to travel around a little bit, and I've enjoyed just about every place I've had the pleasure to go. So I don't mean to sound jingoistic or anything else, but why does Mongolia exist? Like, what's the purpose of Mongolia? Or, or what's the purpose of Luxembourg? You know, why do we have a Finland? Um, why, why do we have a, a Chile? I mean, these, these nations... Um, seem to be uh, products of history and ethnicity, while the United States is a product of philosophy. We exist to uphold a certain set of principles, that, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and then the, the part that um, people 
oftentimes leave out, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, right? I mean, these individual rights are the purpose of our government. That's why we have it. That's why we, we bother to have it. And, and this government has twin tests of legitimacy. One is that it protects individual rights. The other is in the second half of that sentence, deriving its just powers from the consent of the governed. So, so we want a government that is popular in its basis, that's based on the consent of the people, and that protects individual rights. And if, if, if the government doesn't do one of those two things, it's not legitimate, right? If it's not based on the will of the people, it's not legitimate. If it doesn't protect individual rights, it's not legitimate. It needs to do both. That is a really tall order, especially in the 18th century. And, and that's one of the things that makes it incredible in our meaning of the word. In the original meaning of the word, incredible, which is to say almost unthinkable, we are engaging in 1775 and 1776 in a war that we hope is going to expand liberty. Now, now we all remember Chris's fantastic talk from last night. War almost never expands liberty. And yet amazingly, amazingly, the war for independence doesn't end as so many other conflicts ended and would end in the future. You know, we don't have a Cromwell who says he's, he's fighting, you know, for, for parliament, but ends up dissolving parliament and declaring himself the Lord protector. We don't have uh, a French revolution where we say that we're, we're fighting for liberty and fraternity and equality and against monarchy and end up with a, a, an emperor like Napoleon. We instead end up with a retiree named George Washington. And, and, and Washington, you know, after leading the Continental Army, um, almost from the very beginning to the very end, Washington, a man who had exposed himself to every hardship, a man uh, who had suffered alongside his soldiers, um, a man who had suffered not only attacks from the British, but also criticisms from, from members of the Continental Congress. George Washington, a man with, with bullet holes literally in his coat, stood before his officers at Newburgh at, at a moment when they seemed ready to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. They were grumbling about half pay and pensions and, and what was in it for them. And, and there, were, there, were, there was talk about perhaps they should march the army down to Philadelphia to make sure that they got their way. Um, or maybe they should march the army west and leave the United States undefended at a moment when um, it needed all the leverage it could muster at the bargaining table where the Treaty of Paris was being um, uh, hammered out. George Washington stood in front of his men um, and put down this so-called Newburgh conspiracy with not only remarks that he had prepared, but with his own personal example. And as he squinted down at the paper in front of him, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a pair of, of glasses, a pair of spectacles. And in the 18th century, um, glasses were seen as a real sign of old age 
and infirmity. And so when Washington put on these glasses, it was really, in, in, in many ways, a, a kind of pathetic sight. And he said, you know, forgive me, gentlemen, for I have grown not only gray, but also nearly blind in your service. And according to people who were there, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. At, at no other point had George Washington seemed so big and at no other point had these battle-hardened veterans felt so small. And, and George Washington, at the end of 1783, um, would tender his resignation to the Continental Congress and return to private life as a citizen of a free and independent United States. So the fact that we have a revolution that doesn't end in dictatorship, that doesn't end in oppression, that doesn't end with a government that is more powerful um, than it was supposed to be, is really incredible. It is truly incredible. In fact, um, the, the gripe after the, PD, the Treaty of, of Paris was signed was that our government didn't have sufficient power to protect liberty. And, and throughout the 1780s, you see um, the pendulum swinging back and forth between various different types of smaller Republican experiments. And in many respects, Americans are eager to make good on the promises of 1776. You see, for example, in Virginia, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison teaming up um, to pass the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom making Virginia the first of the American states to disestablish its official government church and create a free marketplace for religion. And it would be the first, it would not be the last. States are gonna follow Virginia's example until finally Massachusetts does it in 1833. You also see states confronting the reality that, that the universal principles that they embraced in 1776 are not being applied universally within the United States. You see, the, the first generation to really confront the issue of slavery is the revolutionary generation. The, their, their fathers, their grandfathers, seemed not to really think twice about slavery. And yet, for them, the, the uh, fact that this was inconsistent with their principles was absolutely unavoidable. And so you begin to see proposals to chip away at slavery. You see states in the North um, embracing gradual emancipation as a potential solution. To us, it's not a particularly satisfying solution, gradual emancipation. I mean, slavery is an evil thing. You wanna end it immediately, not gradually. I, I, I sometimes joke with uh, the cadets, because West Point is the, th is the sort of place where you could joke about things like active shooters. And uh, I, I'll, I'll joke with the cadets, you know, if there's an active shooter at the end of the hallway, do we want to stop him gradually or immediately, right? I think the answer is pretty clear. We want to stop him immediately. Um, certainly the same should have been true with slavery, but it's better than nothing, which is what had been done before. And so states all, um, you know, north from Pennsylvania northward uh, embraced plans to, uh, over a period of time, eliminate slavery within their borders. Massachusetts, through judicial decisions, eliminated slavery outright. And on the, the national level, 
under the Articles of Confederation. In 1784, Jefferson, a member of Congress, which was then meeting in Annapolis, proposed that in all of the lands west of the Appalachian Mountains and east of the Mississippi River, all of this land that the, the proclamation line had prohibited us from settling, now it was recognized as part of the United States. And Jefferson proposed that all of that land, from the Great Lakes down to the Gulf of Mexico, be free of slavery. And his proposal lost by one vote. One vote. The compromise, of course, is the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which started the process of dividing a line between territory where slavery would be forbidden and territory where slavery would be permitted. The line, of course, in that instance being the Ohio River. But, but people are doing something about slavery, and that's an important accomplishment as well. And, and then you have, maybe on the other side of the equation, people looking at the government of the United States and people looking at the state governments within the United States and saying that the constitutions that, that we created for ourselves in the immediate aftermath of independence go too far in one direction, that they don't give us enough power to mount an adequate defense of our liberty, that they don't allow us to adequately finance our governments, that they don't provide for um, effective decision-making within our governments. And it's a really interesting debate. You know, the people who got together in the same building um, that the Continental Congress had used um, to uh, hammer out the Constitution were by no means assured that their document was going to be ratified. And they engaged in an incredibly thoughtful and productive debate with the people who came to be known as the Anti-Federalists. It's probably a misnomer to call the people who wanted to retain the Articles of Confederation anti-Federalists. They certainly saw themselves as Federalists. Um, they saw the people who supported the Constitution's ratification, the folks who called themselves Federalists, they saw them as Nationalists. But whatever the case may be, this process of ratification led not only to um, an incredible degree of really enlightened political discourse, but also compromise. And, and so the end result is not only do we get a constitution, but as the Anti-Federalists had called for, we also have a Bill of Rights. So the Constitution provides our government with a license to, to have certain specified powers, while the Bill of Rights restrains it from certain actions. And, and that balance is a, a particularly revolutionary thing. Now, now, of course, we know that the Constitution, as, as any document um, written, can be interpreted in different ways. And it's, it's perhaps no surprise that people interpreted the Constitution differently, um, even when they had collaborated on helping to ratify the Constitution. When I think about the Declaration of Independence, you know, the two men who I think are, are, are most responsible for that document um, are, are Jefferson and John Adams. Jefferson is the mouth, sorry, is the pen of independence. John Adams is the mouth of independence, right? They are the Batman and the Robin of independence. You know, flash forward 11 years, and uh, in the same room in Independence Hall, 
you have the two most singularly significant advocates for the Constitution, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. And James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, if Batman and Robin is taken, they're the, the wonder twins of, of the Constitution. And of course, they join with John Jay in authoring the Federalist Papers, arguing for ratification within the state of New York. And the two men um, really share you know, their, their ideas with each other. They believe in the 1780s that they're on the same exact page, that they read the document in the same exact way. And yet, when the government goes into effect, when George Washington becomes our first president, when Alexander Hamilton becomes our first Treasury Secretary, when Thomas Jefferson becomes our first Secretary of State, and when James Madison is elected to our first Congress, suddenly Madison and Hamilton begin to disagree. And, and Hamilton proposes measures like a national bank. And, and Madison is really aghast at this. Hamilton claims that you could sort of read between the lines of the Constitution and that the National Bank is a, is a necessary and, and proper institution to help the government um, carry out its Article I, Section 8 powers. Whereas, as Madison says, the idea of a National Bank was, was broached at the Constitutional Convention. It was discussed. We intentionally decided that we were not going to authorize it. And so there was a real difference of opinion. And uh, this divide was not only over principle, it was also over personality. Hamilton writes this amazing letter um, to a man named Edward Carrington in 1792, where he's trying to explain how it is that he and Madison have had this falling out. And as Hamilton sees it, it's not so much that they disagree, that maybe once they agreed and now they disagree. Um, it's, that, it's that Madison has fallen under the influence of, of, of a man who was not present in Philadelphia. It was, it's almost as if they're in eighth grade. And Madison and Hamilton went off to summer camp together, um, Constitutional Academy or something like that. And uh, they were making you know, friendship bracelets uh, and hanging out. And they were inseparable. But then the school year began. And Thomas Jefferson, who had been off with his family on vacation in France, you know, came back. And now, who does Madison sit with at lunch? <laughs> Not Hamilton. But, but, but Hamilton's new arch enemy, Thomas Jefferson. And, uh, and the, the, the debate between the Hamiltonian Federalists and the, the Jeffersonian Republicans during the 1790s is, is one that is both significant and significantly more intense than I think anyone had ever predicted. One of the, the institutions that's not accounted for um, within the Constitution is political parties, something that we didn't predict. Um, I think George Washington thought rightfully so. We, we, we didn't predict political parties because Washington thought political parties were stupid and dangerous, right? We might agree um, on, on foreign policy. That doesn't mean that we have to agree on financial policy. Right? People will have a bunch of different opinions. And sometimes um, they will agree with a certain set of people. Other times they will agree with a different set of people. That's how George Washington thought it would work. And yet in practice in the 1790s, we see the United States dividing into two increasingly clear camps. There were the Hamiltonian Federalists who favored a stronger national government, who, who favored a, a broader interpretation of the Constitution, and there were the Jeffersonian Republicans 
who favored a more limited national government, a government limited by a more literal interpretation of the Constitution. And, and this would play itself out um, not only through pol public policy, but also through national politics. Now, George Washington, who served two terms, really held the country together. But when he announced that he was stepping down after two terms in 1796, we set the stage for a political battle that was incredibly acrimonious between John Adams on the Federalist side and Thomas Jefferson on the Republican side. And in the election of 1796, a really hard fought um, and, and close election, John Adams under the rules of the Constitution at the time became president by receiving the largest number of electoral votes and Thomas Jefferson became vice president by receiving the second largest number of electoral votes. Now, don't think for a second that Jefferson was part of the Adams administration. He really wasn't. He may have been vice president, um, but his duties were, were really strictly defined to presiding over the United States Senate. And hopefully, if you could join us tomorrow um, after our tour of Independent, Independence Hall, we'll be able to go next door to Congress Hall um, and see not only the chamber where the House of Representatives met for most of the 1790s, but also go upstairs and see the chamber where the United States Senate met for most of the 1790s, and, and where both John Adams um, and Thomas Jefferson presided as Vice President of the United States. So this election of 1796 um, brought about an outcome um, that, that left the Jeffersonian Republicans out of power. It also left John Adams in a particularly precarious position because he soon found himself leading a party with which he oftentimes disagreed. One of the, uh, the things that Americans always hoped to be able to insulate themselves against, but oftentimes found themselves uh, incapable of insulating themselves against, is foreign conflict. And, and almost as if it was like a law of physics, Britain and France were at war with one another again. And America struggled to maintain its neutrality under the Adams administration. And our ships were being attacked on the high seas, increasingly by France, after we signed the Jay Treaty, which improved our relationship with Great Britain. And, and many Federalists called for war with France. And, uh, you know, there were some good uh, reasons why Federalists would support war with France. One of them would be that France had attacked American ships. Another one would be that in the course of the 1790s, Thomas Jefferson had become connected in the public mind with France. And uh, if, if we go to war with, with France and Jefferson is associated with that nation, then that would be politically devastating to Thomas Jefferson. And yet John Adams did um, a really incredible thing. John Adams didn't think about what would be politically advantageous for himself. John Adams thought instead, what is best for America? Do we want to go to war with France? If we do, there's the chance that we might lose and our independence might be compromised to France. But then again, if we go to war with France, there's a chance that we might win. But if we're going to win, he knew how that would happen. We would win by falling into the orbit of Great Britain, 
compromising our independence to the British. And of course, he knew that we would lose lives and treasure. And if we could avoid this, we should. So Adams made, I think, a, a pretty terrible mistake, um, a mistake constitutionally as well as politically. Um, he agreed to sign the Alien and Sedition Acts. And the Sedition Act in particular um, is, is, I think, clearly unconstitutional. Um, it, it made it a crime to criticize or expose to mockery the, the, the government or, or the, the officials of the government of the United States. And, uh, I mean, this is mind-boggling to Jefferson and Madison. Um, the Bill of Rights had been ratified in 1791. The ink had barely dried. You know, I, I, they could understand that Hamilton might come up with certain fancy interpretations um, for what the Constitution might mean, but they just couldn't get past the fairly non-ambiguous way that the First Amendment begins. Congress shall make no law. And the American people saw this as well. And in a way, it was almost as if the, the policies that the Federalists had pursued caused Americans to fear that we were, in fact, sliding back toward a British monarchical government, that our government had been hijacked by people who were hostile to liberty, that the spirit of 1776 stood endangered. So the Jeffersonian Republicans accuse Adams and the Federalists of being British monarchists. The Federalists, they accuse Thomas Jefferson and the Republicans of being French revolutionaries. And in the buildup toward the election of 1800, America suffers another very severe blow in December of 1799 with the death of George Washington. It's probably worth pointing out that, you know, part of Washington's genius was retiring when he did. By retiring when he did, he established the precedent that the president will serve for two years. I'm sorry, two terms. Had he served for three, he would have established the precedent that the president serves for life because he would have died in office. So George Washington dies down at Mount Vernon as a private citizen. And, and America mourns. And Federalists try to take advantage of this opportunity to compare Thomas Jefferson, not to John Adams, about whom they had their own misgivings, but instead to compare Thomas Jefferson to George Washington. This is the comparison that Federalists wanted Americans to make. And they employed their fellow citizens to look on this picture and on this. And we could see George Washington, um, despite the, his recent passing, looking you know, um, amazingly fresh and young. Um, and above his head is a, a laurel wreath emitting rays of light. And beneath him, we could see he rests upon a foundation of uh, law, order, and, and religion. Um, Jefferson, on the other hand, above him is a snuffed out lamp. And beneath him is a foundation of radical philosophical texts by Tom Paine, who by this point had kind of gone off the deep end as far as a lot of Americans were concerned, and Voltaire and Condorcet. Um, and, and by Jefferson is a serpent and, uh, and an alligator. But beneath Washington, and here the Federalists gave a little bit too much away, I believe, was not only the American eagle, but, oops, the British lion. So uh, 
So this is, this is the comparison that, that Federalists wanted Americans um, to draw. The, uh, the recent revelation that Jefferson had written a letter um, to a Charlottesville neighbor who was an Italian national and had gone back to Italy for a time, um, asking Jefferson to manage his farm for him. Uh, Jefferson sent off a letter, you know, telling him about like his, his crops and, you know, how the farm was, was going and a little bit of financial business. And then to take a little bit of the, the dryness off the letter, Jefferson wrote to this man, his name is Philip Mazet. Um, he said, it would give you a fever if you could see how men who were um, Samson's in the, in the field and Solomon's in council had, ha- have had their heads shorn by the harlot Eng- England. And in other words, Jefferson, you know, referring to the biblical story of Samson and Delilah, is compared, who could be the, who was the Samson in the field and the Solomon in the council he was referring to? It had to have been George Washington. And so the emergence of this letter um, in the late 1790s uh, was, was another sort of weapon that Federalists could use against Thomas Jefferson. He dared criticize Washington. And, and here, not only is he letting drop from his right hand his letter to Mazet, but he's trying to use his left hand to burn the Constitution of the United States on an altar to Gallic despotism. And uh, we see that the federal, the federal eagle is guided by the eye of God. So, so I mean, this is not all that subtle. If you're on the side of God and America, don't vote for Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> However, you should vote for Thomas Jefferson if you're on the side of the guy who's cheering him on in the lower right-hand corner. The devil. The devil. So if you're pro-Satan, go ahead and vote for Thomas Jefferson. I mean, it's, there's not much subtlety. And we, we think that our own politics um, are divisive and, and poisonous. But I think you can make a good case um, that back at the turn of the 19th century, things were even worse. Um, well, anyway, the, the result of the election of 1800 is that Thomas Jefferson was elected president of the United States. And after this really rancorous campaign, he had an opportunity um, to try to unite people around his principles through his first inaugural address. And of course, the line that is oftentimes quoted in history textbooks um, is we are all Federalist, we are all Republican. And I have to tell you, that's a really sneaky line of Jefferson's because um, the textbooks and the way that Americans at the time heard it, they capitalized the F in Federalist and they capitalized the R in Republican. Um, but in Jefferson's manuscript, it's a lowercase f and it's a lowercase r, right? We all believe in a federal government. We all believe in a Republican government. That's what he was saying. Um, but on another level, you know, what pe- he knew what people would be hearing is we- we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans, we're all in this together. Um, and then he began to list the great advantages that America enjoyed. Our wonderful population, our wonderful natural resources. And he asked um, the audience, what remains to close the circle of our felicities? And he answered his own question. One thing more, a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This, Jefferson said, is the sum of good government. And uh, Jefferson made good on this pledge. 
his government took a number of steps to shrink the size and scope of the national government. One of the, uh, the flare-ups of the 1790s was the Whiskey Rebellion. Hamilton imposed uh, the whiskey excise tax upon the people of America. Uh, among other reasons, Hamilton wanted uh, all of America to, to essentially feel federal power. And he wanted representatives of the federal government and all parts of America. Whiskey um, was not only you know, drank, but it was also used as a commodity. It was used as a, as a tool for barter in the backcountry of the United States, in places like, for example, Western Pennsylvania. And this tax on whiskey was really an inefficient tax to collect. I mean, you had to hire all of these federal agents who would be whiskey inspectors. They would go to people's houses and, and measure their stills to assess this tax. Um, so it's a very expensive tax that requires a lot of tax collectors, but I think that's part of Hamilton's plan, right? I mean, he's essentially ensuring that his administration, which is the term he used for Washington's administration, Hamilton said, called it hit my administration, um, was, was, was going to be felt um, and, and going to have agents, you know, all throughout the United States. And of course, this unpopular tax led to the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, which is put down by George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. Um, well, Jefferson eliminates all internal taxes. And, and by doing so, he's able to eliminate all of these revenue collectors from the federal payroll. He, he shrinks the government in other ways and, and yet succeeds through increased trade and increasing revenue. And over time, Jefferson in his two terms, is able to pay down the national debt by one-third. So that's a really significant achievement, especially when you consider Jefferson's one big splurge. And what was that? Louisiana. So Jefferson is presented with um, an amazing opportunity. Now, he sends over to France which is soon going to gain um, from Spain possession of the Louisiana Territory. Um, he sends Monroe and Livingston to France with a mission to purchase the city of New Orleans. It was the city of New Orleans that had been used by the Spanish to block um, Americans' access to the Gulf of Mexico from the Mississippi River. For, for more than a decade, this had been a big issue because, of course, when people moved past the Appalachian Mountains into what was then the American West, um, when they, they moved straight to our West Coast, the Mississippi, because that's where they could have farms, that's where they could have the hope of engaging in trade with the rest of the world. But the Spanish didn't want that. They wanted to block that, in part because um, the Spanish wanted to uh, make sure that um, Americans didn't flood this area, that our population didn't increase, that we didn't jump over the Mississippi River and take possession of what they considered their land. Well, by this point, 1803, Napoleon, who was about to take possession of this land from the Spanish by treaty, um, has seen his navy decimated. He has seen his colony of Haiti lost through a slave rebellion where the enslaved uh, people of Haiti um, free themselves and declare their independence. Louisiana, which he had originally envisioned as sort of a breadbasket for Haiti, is no longer necessary for that purpose. 
And Napoleon could use the money a lot more than he could use the land. So he offers to sell it to the United States. And, and for Jefferson, this is just an amazing opportunity. Um, by buying Louisiana, Jefferson would be able, he believed, to secure us in a state of peace. He had said that whoever possessed this territory would be our habitual and perpetual enemy. He said that if it is France, that, and this is Jefferson, we will have to marry ourselves to the British fleet. It will throw us into an alliance with Great Britain. But if we possess this territory, it's almost as if we've got another ocean on our coast. Just as the Atlantic Ocean insulates us from the problems of Europe, the Louisiana territory could insulate us from involvement in European conflict and, and prevent the likelihood of war. I mean, that's one great advantage. Another great advantage Jefferson believed is, is a result of the fact that we have a population that continues to double every 20 years. And while in many ways that's a good thing, in some ways Jefferson thought in the long run it could be problematic. We are an agrarian nation. We are a nation that has particular advantages from the fact that most people are farmers, that most people are family farmers who own their own land, who are their own bosses, who can provide for themselves and their families, which makes them independent of means as well as independent of mind. Jefferson thought that farmers were ideal citizens. And yet, over time, we'll run out of land. We'll be forced into cities. Jefferson was not alone in, in having a, a, an understanding of history that was consistent with um, what other classical Republican thinkers thought, um, that history goes through cycles, that you could look back at the past and see a pattern emerge where civilizations rise and fall. And, and, and essentially in the beginning, things are great. And by the way, I'm gonna show a series of paintings by the uh, artist Thomas Cole that were painted in the 1830s. Collectively, they're known as the Course of Empire. Um, and they're, they're on display at the New York Historical Society. Um, and they all illustrate the same geographic space. So uh, check out that mountain with the boulder up top. You'll see that emerge in, in the other panels. We begin in the pastoral stage, the agrarian phase where people are virtuous farmers, where farmers are hardworking. And all that virtue and all that hard work is eventually gonna pay off. It's eventually gonna lead to the next phase of civilization. It's gonna lead to empire. And empire, of course, has its allures. But empire also sows the seeds of its own destruction. It's, it's when you reach this phase, people believe that folks lose some of their independence of mind and means, that people lose some of the rough equality that they enjoy as farmers, that they begin to trade their liberty for promises of rank and security, that people begin to view themselves as superior to others and worse, inferior to others. And that in this sort of civilization, no longer do we have hardworking, virtuous farmers, 
but increasingly we have decadence and depravity. We have licentiousness and corruption until finally society collapses under its own corpulence, which takes us to the next phase, destruction. Jefferson believed that Louisiana provided us with an opportunity to essentially press pause, to expand across space instead of developing through time, to allow America to retain its Republican virtuous character. And, and yet, Jefferson knew that for all of the advantages offered by Louisiana, there was a significant problem. The Constitution, to which he worked so hard to adhere, made no provision for the addition of new ter territory to the United States. And that's not a trivial thing. So um, unfortunately, my wife and kids uh, couldn't be with me this weekend, but uh, Christine and I have been married for 15 years. So imagine if uh, I go home tomorrow and she greets me at the door, big smile on her face, very happy for some reason. I'm like, hello. And she's like, hi. Guess what? What? Honey, I want you to meet our new husband, Julio. <laughs> Julio Iglesias, right? Now, Julio is the West. The, the, the United States had been a marriage between the North and the South. And now, after the purchase of Louisiana, Jefferson understands this. It is going to be a strange menage a trois with the West. And, and, and is the West going to be more like the North? Or is it going to be more like the South? It is going to change that constitutional contract. It is going to change the nature of that union. And, and this is not a trivial thing. Jefferson, um, his first instinct is that we need to pass a constitutional amendment that will explicitly authorize the purchase of Louisiana. And he drafts one. And he shows it to James Madison, his Secretary of State, and Albert Gallatin, his Secretary of the Treasury. And they kind of grimace and shake their heads. Um, and Madison especially, um, you know, who appears on Jefferson's shoulder like, uh, like, you know, you see the cartoons, there's the angel and the devil, right? So here's Madison, here's Madison as the, uh, the cartoon devil, right? And, and Madison says, don't do it. Do not propose this constitutional amendment because first of all, the Louisiana Purchase, um, it was very popular among the people. Um, but if you admitted that it wasn't constitutional and we didn't get three quarters of the states to ratify it, what then, right? And, and what if we did get the three, three quarters of the states, but it took too long? And, and, and France backed out of the deal. Just swallow hard, Madison urged Jefferson. Allow the Senate to ratify the treaty and the House of Representatives to authorize the money and just purchase Louisiana. And, and that is what Thomas Jefferson did. So we see even Thomas Jefferson finds it very difficult to hold the line as far as interpreting the Constitution is concerned. And this is uh, gonna be increasingly uh, a problem as we move forward into the 19th century. Um, one of the things that Louisiana does is it creates this big question mark over the map of the United States. I mentioned earlier that um, the northern states in the aftermath of the American Revolution began to embrace plans of gradual emancipation. The south, 
For a while, it seemed, maybe the South would be able to engage in gradual emancipation as well. In Virginia, for example, tobacco had been depleting the soil. Increasingly, people were converting their, their farms to wheat, which was less labor intensive. But in 1793, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. And suddenly, cotton, which had been a fabric that was really uh, so expensive that only aristocrats could, could own cotton clothing. Now, because the cotton gin very quickly and efficiently combed the sticky little seeds out of the cotton uh, fiber, now the cotton gin uh, made cotton affordable for all, and everybody wanted it. Cotton became this boom crop for the United States. Eventually, cotton would be responsible for 60% of our GDP. You know, oil is, for Saudi Arabia, what cotton was for the United States. And, and the demand for slave labor that the cotton boom produced in the American South occurred at an especially tragic time. Because just as the northern states are embracing gradual emancipation, the South is looking to buy more slaves. Now Jefferson, as president in 1808, is able to successfully end the international slave trade. So no new slaves can be brought into the United States. But if you're a northern slave owner, and you know that your human property is going to cease to be your property on some future given date, you may very well fall victim to the temptation to sell your slaves to the South. And many, in fact, were. So there weren't that many people emancipated in the North. The majority of Northern slaves ended up in the South. And what had been a national institution became the peculiar institution of the American South. And, and, and with the advent of the market revolution, our economy, um, because of advances in transportation, became more regionally specialized than ever before, but also, of course, more interconnected. So for example, the cotton that was grown in the South, that raw cotton was shipped to the North, where it was spun into cloth and textile mills in places like Lowell, Massachusetts. The market revolution provided all sorts of opportunities for Americans, especially in the North. The Lowell Mills, um, which have a really interesting history, in their early years provided really attractive jobs for, for young women from farming families in New England. And uh, women would typically, as teenagers, uh, go for a period of several years, and, and this was their opportunity to kind of see the world, right, and be with people um, from exotic places far beyond, you know, the farm town where they had been born, right? So, so maybe their world had been limited to a 20-mile uh, radius around their, their town in Vermont. But now in Lowell, they could work alongside people from exotic locales like Providence and New Haven and Waterbury, right? And, but, but, you know, to us, that's hilarious, right? But to them, this is amazing. And what's really amazing is that they get paid, that they get cash, that they have a certain degree as women of financial independence. And, uh, you know, people are, are pretty impressed by these Lowell Mills. Um, at this point, Davy Crockett, I think, you know, not counting the founders, my two, you know, favorite American heroes are uh, Frederick Douglass and Davy Crockett. Uh, Davy Crockett is just great on, on so many different levels. Um, but he decides that he wants to go visit Lowell, Massachusetts and see what this is all about. He says, um, the next morning I rose early and started for Lowell. 
I had heard so much of this place that I longed to see it. I wanted to see the power of machinery wielded by the keenest calculations of human skill. I wanted to see how it was that these northerners could buy our cotton, carry it home, manufacture it, bring it back and sell it for half nothing. And in the meantime, be well to live and make money besides. As he, as he arrived, um, the dinner bells were ringing and the folks pouring out of the houses like bees out of a gum. The, the women all lived in, in, in dormitories. Um, I looked at them as they passed, all well-dressed, lively, and genteel in their appearance. Indeed, the girls looked as if they were coming from a quilting frolic. So I know that that paints a very vivid picture in our mind's eyes, right? Um, I went in among the young girls and talked with many of them. Not one expressed herself as tired of her employment or oppressed with work. All talked well and looked healthy. I could not help reflecting on the difference of condition between these females thus employed and those of other populous countries where female character is degraded to abject slavery. Here were thousands useful to others and enjoying all the blessings of freedom with the prospect before them of future comfort and respectability. And when you, uh, when you consider what these women would go on to do, what they would, many of them, go on to accomplish, David Crockett is right. I mean, a lot of these women are going to go back um, to their, their farms and they're going to get married. Um, but after having had this experience, um, and, and, and like women who will... Uh, you know, be in the next generation after having the experience of, of having an education. I mean, this new, um, this new economy, of course, rewards specialization. It rewards people um, who have uh, advanced degrees of knowledge. And, and education is a result of the market revolution. We think about the market revolution. Some people talk about um, child labor during the market revolution as if the market revolution caused child labor. There had always been child labor. That was the default for all of time. The market revolution caused the end of child labor as more and more kids would be sent off to school so that they could enjoy all of the benefits, all of the opportunities that this new market economy provided. Well, this bifurcated national economy where the North was becoming increasingly industrial and the South was becoming um, increasingly agricultural, divided American politics. And during the administration of President Andrew Jackson, there was a very big controversy over the tariff. Now, the basic economics of it is this. Northerners supported the tariff. They supported a tariff on imported European manufactured goods because that made it easier for them to sell their own manufactured goods. Let's say you're, you're Chauncey Jerome, who was a New Haven, Connecticut clockmaker. He could make a pretty good clock for $10 a clock. Only problem was the British had been at the clockmaking business longer. They could make a slightly better clock for $9 a clock. Which clock are people gonna buy? They're gonna buy the $9 British clock. But let's say that we put a $2 tariff on the British clock. How much does the British clock cost then? It's 11 bucks, right? And how much does Chauncey Jerome's clock cost? Some people say $10. That's what it cost before. But the answer is no. His, his clock cost $10.75, right? <laughs> He's able to raise 
He's able to raise the price of his clock, right, and still sell more clocks because the tariff artificially inflates the cost of the British clock. So this, the tariff is great for Chauncey Jerome. It's great for people who work for Chauncey Jerome. It's kind of lousy for people who, who, who buy clocks. It's especially bad for people who fall victim to the inevitable retaliation by the British. We've put a, a tariff on what they sent to us. They're going to put a tariff on what we send to them. What do we send to them? Cotton. We send cotton to them. They put a tariff on our cotton, which makes our cotton more expensive there, which makes it so that people in Britain can afford to buy less of our cotton. In other words, we have a national policy that benefits one particular region, that plays favorites, that put its, puts its finger on the scale. And during the Jackson administration, Andrew Jackson and his vice president, his first vice president, John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, have a strong disagreement about South Carolina's um, threat to nullify the tariff, to not enforce it. And eventually this, this threat, you know, which, which takes us all the way to the brink of, of Jackson threatening to send federal troops to South Carolina, is, is going to be nullified by a, a compromise tariff in 1833. But there will be no compromise um, between Andrew Jackson and John C. Calhoun, who was dumped from the, uh, the ticket and replaced by Martin Van Buren. People oftentimes talk about um, how the presidency can age someone. You know, you see before and after, after pictures of Barack Obama or Jimmy Carter or what have you. Uh, I'll tell you, um, the vice presidency can be even more devastating. So this is, this is, you know, John C. Calhoun before being vice president. Here's Calhoun after. So the 19th century is, is beginning to wear upon people. And, uh, and it is a stressful time. It's a stressful time in part because um, the territories that we acquire, not just Louisiana, but we're going to annex Texas. Um, through the Treaty of Guadalupe Aldago, we're going to take in a lot of territory in the American um, Southwest. We're going to compromise with Great Britain and extend the line at the 49th parallel um, to acquire uh, the Oregon country um, and, the, and the new territories of Washington and Oregon. All of this land is beginning to raise the question, is America going to be majority slave or is America going to be majority free? And this question is taking on an increased urgency because more and more people in the North are beginning to appreciate the fact that slavery is not something that should be stopped gradually. Slavery isn't evil. Slavery should be stopped immediately. It's no surprise that some of the leaders of the Northern abolitionist movement were, were women, you know, who had the benefit of increased education. It's, it's no surprise um, that things like the, the growth of the novel during the market revolution would, would have the impact that it did when uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, for example, published Uncle Tom's Cabin. Slight aside, Harriet Beecher Stowe's house in, is in Hartford, Connecticut, and it's right next door to the house of Mark Twain. So if you ever visit Hartford, Connecticut, um, see both houses. They both say a lot about 
um, about their, their occupants. Harriet Beecher Stowe House is very prim and proper. Um, it's, it's very tidy, it's very Victorian. Um, you know, she, of course, is the daughter of the, the noted uh, preacher, Lyman Beecher. Um, when you go into her house, uh, in the kitchen, there's like wax fruit on the table that I'm convinced has been there since she lived there in the 19th century, right? She's the sort of person who would have wax fruit. Um, meanwhile, you go next door to Mark Twain's house, and it's the party house, right? I mean, he has like this man cave on the, on the upper floor, and I, I could just imagine him and his friends like mooning Harriet Beecher Stowe. I could totally see that happening. But, but anyway, Harriet Beecher Stowe writes Uncle Tom's Cabin. And, and this is but one of many things that opens the eyes of people to the inherent evils of slavery. And, and the fact that we annex Texas and then go to war with Mexico to, to solidify our claim to Texas. The Mexican war is incredibly controversial. Northerners are like, why should I send my son to die so that we could bring more slave territory into the United States? So abolitionism is gaining ground. And in the South, where in the 18th century, you might encounter Southerners saying, yes, I think slavery is a necessary evil, right? It's necessary, but I admit, it's evil. Increasingly, Southerners are saying that slavery is a positive good and pro-slavery thought, right? A doctrine um, uh, you know, supported by people like Calhoun, as, as well as one of its leading thinkers, George Fitzhugh, posits that slavery is good not only for white people, slavery is good for black people. Pro-slavery thinkers say that slavery is good for black people because it civilizes and Christianizes them and it cares for them from the cradle to the grave. Everybody works according to their ability, black and white, and everybody receives according to their need. And if you think that I'm saying that this is a lot like socialism, don't take it from me. Take it from George Fitzhugh, who in his 1850 book, Sociology for the South, declared that slavery is a form and the best form of socialism. And, and, and so there's, there's, there's no disguising the fact that slavery is inherently at odds with the American tradition of individualism and individual liberty. And more and more we see not only political but also philosophical divides between Northerners and Southerners. And one of the things that had actually been holding together the North and the South was the existence, the continuing existence of a two-party system. Now, the Federalists and the Republicans, by this point, are a thing of the past. But we had the Democrats and the Whigs. And while the Democrats were stronger in the North, I'm sorry, in the South, there were Southern Whigs. And while the Whigs were stronger in the North, there were Northern Democrats. Until the 1850s, when the second-party system began to fall apart, and, and, and by the time you get to the election of 1860, you see that the Whigs are a shattered party. And from the ruins has emerged a new party, a regional party, the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln, which has committed itself to stopping the expansion of slavery. In the election of 1860, um, Abraham Lincoln wins uh, only 40% of the popular vote. And yet, 
he receives close to 60% of the electoral votes in this four-man race. Lincoln is not even on the ballot in 10 southern states. And, and southerners greet the election of Abraham Lincoln as if it is a, a terrible calamity. And, and, and to many, there's only one thing that can be done. Leave this union before it's too late. The fear is that Lincoln is an abolitionist in disguise, or that even if he holds true to his word and prevents the future admission of any new slave states, that, that the slave states will be overwhelmed by free states who will use their political power to outlaw slavery. So as a result, the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln takes place after a number of states have already decided to leave the Union. You, you, know, you think about presidential inaugurations. I remember in 2008, um, 2009 actually, January of 2009, people were um, just so uh, over the moon at the inauguration of President Obama. And uh, U2 had this concert at the Lincoln Memorial, and um, there were all these parades, and Pepsi changed its logo, and you know, there were t-shirts and you know Abraham Lincoln gets inaugurated and and states are leaving the union I mean I feel I feel so sorry for this guy I mean what a what a terrible you know thing to have to deal with and the Civil War of course is soon going to begin union doesn't want to throw Lincoln doesn't want to throw the first punch but he doesn't want to allow the South to freely go um, and so he refuses to withdraw federal troops from Fort Sum Sumter in the, in the harbor of Charleston. People of South Carolina say, we are now in, part of an independent country, and you are occupying our territory with your military. You need to leave. Lincoln refuses to leave. The South fires on Fort Sumter. Then the North responds, which triggers Virginia and North Carolina and other states of the Upper South to leave the Union. And then Lincoln has an even bigger dilemma which is the fact that Maryland is a slave state, and it too might secede. And then the capital of the United States of America will be surrounded by the Confederate States of America. So what to do? I mean, Lincoln um, makes some, some choices that to this day remain controversial. One of the things that he does is without congressional authorization, suspend habeas corpus. In other words, he assumes a power to round people up and jail them without charging them with any particular crime. And that's a very effective tool when you believe that there are lots of people in Maryland who want Maryland to secede. And you could identify these secessionists and put them in jail. But it is a, an extra, if not unconstitutional tool. The Constitution says that you could eliminate or, or suspend habeas corpus with the approval of Congress, which at that point was not in session. Lincoln imposes a draft. Lincoln imposes the first federal income tax. The Civil War, which results in the, the real or de facto nationalization of American railways and, and gun manufacturing, increases the size and scope of government far beyond anything anyone imagined in 1787. And, and, and this is not a surprise. I mean, as we learned from Chris's talk last night, um, people like James Madison warned of all the enemies of true liberty. War is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. Or um, as even Hamilton warned, 
the violent destruction of life and property incident to war, the continual effort and alarm attendant on a large and continual danger will compel nations the most attached to liberty to resort for repose and security to institutions which have a tendency to destroy their civil and political rights. To be more safe, they at length become willing to run the risk of being less free. And indeed, that is what the United States government does, as well as the Confederate government does during the Civil War. What makes this particularly tragic is that it seems very clear that Abraham Lincoln um, isn't fighting for the great cause of emancipation. He's fighting to retain the consolidation of the government of the United States. As, as he writes in 1862, slavery is for him a means to an end and not an end in itself. His goal is union. If I could save the union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. And all of those things are exactly what Lincoln does, right? He pursues the, the Crittenden um, compromise, which would have forever allowed slavery to, to exist where it currently existed. But the South wasn't interested in that and, and retained its desire for secession. And then in 1862 and 1863, Lincoln embraces the Emancipation Proclamation, which eliminates slavery in the states that are still in active rebellion, which is to say, eliminates slavery in all the places where Lincoln had no power to actually eliminate slavery. Although once federal troops rolled into that territory, the slaves would be emancipated. And then finally, at the end of the war, in 1865, with the passage of the 13th Amendment, finally, slavery is eliminated throughout the United States. But at a tremendous cost. 750,000 American dead between the North and the South, and a government, as we'll explore this afternoon, that in many respects has been significantly transformed. The, the second American Republic that emerged after the Civil War is, is significantly different from the first American Republic that was envisioned in Philadelphia in 1787. So thank you very much, and we have some time for some questions. Yeah, go ahead. Hi there, thank you very much. Um, so I have two questions, but they're pretty interrelated. Uh, the first one in the beginning, you were talking about the comparisons between the French Revolution and the American Revolution, and it brought to mind Hannah Arendt's comparison of the same thing. Um, and so I was just wondering what you thought about her idea that the French Revolution partially failed, or in a major way failed, because uh, what was in the, the minds of the people um, trying to have it succeed was the short-term compassion for the people um, and, and that kind of uh, desire to vindicate them versus the higher, broader, long-term principles of the people in charge of the American Revolution. Uh, that's the first one. And the second one, and especially in the modern context, if you still think that that holds true. Okay. And then the uh, second one was, you mentioned a couple instances like slavery, the Louisiana Purchase, and the uh, National Bank. <clears throat> and it seems to me like those are all... Um, the, like, the American struggle is an attempt to fit 
novel challenges into um, sometimes tempting answers mm -hmm. against the restraints of the Constitution. I wondered if what you thought about that. Okay, great. So uh, the Hannah Arendt question, um, you know, if you're not familiar with Hannah Arendt, she's this uh, 20th century political theorist um, who comes to the United States from Russia. She wrote a, a, a number of things, including a book that I read when I was in graduate school called On Revolution. Um, sadly, I was in graduate school a long time ago. So uh, to the best of my memory, um, I, I hear what you're saying, and I remember another thing that she points out, which is that the word revolution itself um, was, was something that could be interpreted in different ways. Um, in some ways, a revolution was understood by people to be um, like an orbit. You know, a revolution is, is to go full circle. So the glorious revolution of 1688, for example, Britain started off in a, in a good place, then um, under James II it went to a bad place, then under William and Mary it was restored back to that good place. Um, the French Revolution is conceived of as a different sort of revolution, a revolution that starts at point A and ends at point B, right? A radical departure, a radical change. Now, of course, we know the truth about the French Revolution. It starts with King Louis, um, which is bad, and then you go through liberty and fraternity and, uh, and equality and the reign of terror um, and, and, and war, and you arrive back at Emperor Napoleon. Um, I think... You know, one of the things about the, the charity of the people for one another um, and, and their, their sense of restraint and their sense of limit is, is, is interesting. I mean, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who the Federalists uh, did so much to associate with the radicalism of the French Revolution, was actually very skeptical about what sort of government the French people could possess. And when he was there as our ambassador, what he, what he wrote he hoped for was, um, uh, and this is amazing coming from Jefferson, a British-style constitutional monarchy. In other words, Jefferson thought that the French people weren't ready for the sort of government that the United States had, um, that, they, that they hadn't evolved um, institutions like a respect for the rule of law or widespread property ownership um, that, that, that made Americans particularly good citizens. And, and so maybe the French uh, could have training wheels for a while, um, and, and then after a while, would be able to embrace uh, a government as, as, as free as ours. So I, I hope that answers your, your question about Hannah Arendt. The, the second one about uh, the Constitution responding to new things is really interesting. Um, and, and of course, you know, we, we get it. Uh, things happen that they couldn't envision in, in Philadelphia in 1787. Um, and, and, and what do you do? I mean, I think it's always very tempting to maybe do your best and say, mm, I'm just going to say that they would, would approve of what we're doing and that the Constitution allows for what uh, we're doing, even if it really doesn't. Um, and I think, it, I think Jefferson's first inclination was, in many respects, the, the right one, although I hate to imagine what would have happened if we didn't add Louisiana. Although I have to say, too, I don't need to imagine what happened after we did add Louisiana. I mean, in many respects, the tension between the North and the South was about the West. Is the West going to be more like the North? Is the West going to be more like the South? I mean, what drives America apart um, during the course of the 19th century leading up to the Civil War is, is, is a question of um, territorial expansion. And will these new states um, be incorporated as free states or slave states? And potentially that would not have happened had it not been for the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and maybe for better, maybe for worse, probably for better and for worse, our history would be very different. Um, so anyway, it's kind of a muddled answer, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a muddled situation. Uh, yes, sir. 
here I came to America from the continent in the 60s. And I learned about the Declaration of Independence, those inalienable rights that the only legitimate function of a government is to protect those inalienable rights. And it slowly dawned on me, in Europe, this concept is unknown. Where do rights come from in Europe? They're granted by the state. Mm -hmm. And our, our way of doing it led to the Industrial Revolution, wealth creation beyond belief, and at the same time, the French Revolution ended up chopping off heads. No wonder the French only want 20% personal freedom. Right. No, it, you're you're making I, a really great point. Am I understanding this wrong or right? Can you com com commentary on this, my understanding of this? I, th I think you're very much right. I mean, I, I think it's kind of sad, though, because I think um, increasingly Americans don't realize that fact. Exactly. Um, I think increasingly Americans don't realize what the purpose, what the stated clear purpose of the government of the United States is. Um, and, and I think we oftentimes um, put too much emphasis on, on how we make decisions and, and not enough emphasis on the sorts of decisions that we make. Uh, you know, I think I would agree with, with Churchill that um, democracy is the worst form of government with the exception of all the others. But, but certainly it's flawed. And, and maybe one of the things that's genius about what the men in, in Philadelphia in 1787 did was they came up with mechanisms to check and balance and filter expressions of the popular will. Um, but what Americans seem to forget is that the reason we have this government in the first place is to protect individual rights. And when you see American presidents going on the television, and all American presidents, at least in my lifetime, do this um, or have done this, um, when they talk about um, what changes we want to bring about for the rest of the world through our, our foreign policy interventions, they're always talking about bringing democracy. I don't really think that's, that's, that's what we should be aiming for. We should be aiming for bringing liberty, right? And, and the democratic process can be an important part of it. But, but it's, it's liberty that comes first and foremost, um, at least in the eyes of the founding fathers. Yes. So the, the education of, of the Founding Fathers is uh, an endless, uh, fascinating topic for me. Um, and so I'd like to know in your studies uh, how you come across how far back their education goes in understanding um, and why the Roman Republic was a source of a lot of what they did. And even further back beyond that, uh, how far back does their education go and their inspirations uh, extend to, if you could speak to that. And why in particular a republic and not something entirely new and different? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm oftentimes shocked at, at how learned um, members of the founding generation were, um, in part because none of them had the benefit of public schools. Um, and and uh, yeah, I mean, so it is, it's, it's incredible. I mean, they, they, they were exceptionally well-read. Well um, one of the things that was a, a standard part of, of the education um, of, of someone who was going to be a, a gentleman or a lawyer, someone who um, was going to be educated, was the study of, of Latin and Greek. And, and of course, through the study of Latin and Greek, um, they would read the history of, 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 of Roman Greece. And, uh, and so they were very well informed about the classical world, and, um, and it provided them with many stories and many examples that they applied to their own situation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's... That's an important part of, of who they were and how they read their situation, um, as well as um, how they envisioned the, the new nation that they hoped to establish. Are we out of time? Okay, I apologize, but we can talk after. Thank you very much.